0: Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Matarese, and welcome to Disaster Area. <music> Episode 3, the SS Eastland Disaster, July 24th, 1915. 844 deceased, hundreds injured. Life is Hell, a partial quote from an unsent love letter found on a dead girl retrieved from the wreckage of the Eastland. The last minute of it, a policeman in response to this quote, reading the letter on the wharf after it was retrieved. Harpo Studios is haunted. Now, people who worked in the building, which housed Oprah Winfrey's Chicago studio, told stories of hearing ghostly sounds. Children laughing, turn-of-the-century music, phantom cries for help. There was even security camera video of a ghost seen in the halls of Harper Studios, called the Grey Lady, a woman wearing the sort of long dress and wide-brimmed hat popular in the early 1900s. Whether or not you believe in ghosts, the source of these stories becomes clear when you know the history of the building. Prior to its time as a television studio, the building was the 2nd Regiment Armory, And in July of 1915, it served as an emergency morgue for one of the worst tragedies in American history. Now, the SS Eastland was a ship that was known for its speed. It was called the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. It was commissioned in 1902 by the Michigan Steamship Company and built by the Jenks Shipbuilding Company of Port Huron, Michigan. It was its first passenger steamer, and it turned out its last. And Sidney Jenks, who was the president of the company, would be quoted later on at trial as saying that he and the company had no way of knowing the quantity of its business after it left our yards in regards to the ship. It really didn't know, according to him, they didn't really know what the ship was going to be used for after it was taken away, and they kind of didn't care. Um, The first owners wanted a fast ship to transport fruit, which was a big thing um, on the lake at that time. And so they designed a ship that would go 20 miles per hour and carry 500 people as well as the cargo of fruit. The contract that they had stated that the first owners wouldn't take the ship unless the ship could do at least 19 miles per hour. So they were looking for a fast ship. They got one. But there was no stability test of the ship. When it was first launched, uh, the launching, it tilted at 45 degrees. But Jenks is quoted as saying, it righted itself as straight as a church, satisfactorily demonstrating its stability. So they really didn't have to have a stability test. It recovered from that. Now, the ship had four decks above the water. And it had five gangway doors opening up on the main deck. And they were so low in the water that when they were fill, when the boat was filled, water would slosh onto the deck. And if you look at old photos of the ship, they are really low. I, I don't know anything about shipbuilding. I really had to kind of bone up on port and starboard and, and stern and aft for this episode. And I, even I looking at these pictures thought, why would anybody think this was safe? Now, the ship had double smokestacks. It had writing salons for men and women on either side of the smokestacks. It had a smoking room. It had a lot of great stuff, a lot of really nice amenities for what was basically an excursion ship. People would go on the boat, and they would go maybe for a three-hour ride over to... You know, from Chicago to Michigan City, which is what happened uh, the day of the disaster that was what it was scheduled for. It was um, 1903 that they had their maiden season. The ship was named by Mrs. David Reed. She won $10 and a one-season pass for the ship. And almost as soon as it got into the water, it started having listing incidents. When it first went out there, uh, overcrowding on one, uh, one excursion caused the ship to list and water to flow up the gangplanks, but this was quickly taken care of. However, later that month in July, the stern of the ship was damaged when the ship backed into the tugboat George W. Gardner. There'd be another listing incident in 1906 as well, and after that, complaints would be filed against the Chicago-South Haven line, who owned it at the time and had purchased the ship earlier in the year. At one point, the reputation of the ship was so bad, the owners put out a newspaper ad offering $5,000 to anyone who could prove the ship was not seaworthy. It had a reputation for being, the the word was cranky, like sort of a, toddler throwing a tantrum in August of 1903 you know back when it was first on the water they actually had a strike that occurred in the middle of Lake Michigan there were 550 passengers and crew on board when the ship stopped suddenly um, the captain John Perot I think is how you say his name uh, went down to see what was going on and what happened was that six firemen had refused to continue working until they were given suitable food quote-unquote, for their voyage. The captain and first mate ordered the six to be arrested and charged with mutiny. The two firemen left stoked the fires to get them to South Haven, Michigan, at which point the six who had the strike were put in jail. And The captain told newspaper men the men wanted mashed potatoes instead of boiled potatoes. Uh, whatever it was, one way or another, they threw a mutiny. Uh, Shortly after this um, event, there was another incident which caused the captain to be replaced. But it's, it's not exactly a very good reputation anyway. There's a lot of bad things going on in this ship. It's not really a good history to go into this disaster with. In 1912, of course, the Titanic sank, and because of the problems with the lifeboats and that sort of thing, the Federal Siemens Act was passed in 1915. And what happened with the Eastland that was that it required retrofitting of a complete set of lifeboats on the Eastland, and they ended up on the top deck, which was the hurricane deck. It made the ship more top-heavy, which was... I mean, this is a ship that was already top-heavy. It really didn't need any more help in that arena. At the time of the disaster, the captain was Harry Peterson. Uh, he was a Norwegian immigrant. Uh, the chief engineer was Joseph Ericsson, er- Ericsson and he was another um, Norwegian immigrant. It was a lot of uh, uh, Scandinavian people working in the shipping industry at the time. There was a lot of, you know, what they had done back at home, so then they came to America, and that's what they did here. Now, Chicago in 1915, as a city, uh, the population was 2.5 million people. It had stockyards, steelworks, shipbuilders. These were the kind of industries that you had available. And the railroad was one of the biggest employers, so that was another thing where where people were, were getting a lot of work. Public transportation was huge. There were streetcars all over and they followed the loop around. The atmosphere of Chicago was very loud and cluttered and dirty. The streets were made with these wooden blocks that were cemented together by tar. Now, manure would fall through in the cracks and stick there, and it, it would grow weeds and grass in between. Chicago winters were just would just cause those, those wooden blocks to crack and warp, so you can imagine just how bad the streets were at that particular time. The 19th century tunnels that um, were used by wagons and pedestrians to get under the river were also used as an escape during the Chicago fire, so obviously they had been around a while. And at least once a summer, the river would just spontaneously combust from the refuse and manure which clouded its deft, depths, It was disgusting. It was just a really gross, you know, things would fall into it from the ships, from the bridges, from, you know, people throwing things in there. It was just very gross. Now crime at the time was really bad in Chicago, um, white slavery thrived. Uh, there were a lot of immigrants who were being tricked into prostitution. You know, you'd, you'd hear about, um, somebody or somebody would meet you on the street off a ship and say, Oh, I can take you to a safe place. And, and you would end up being taken to a brothel where you would be forced into prostitution. And there were so many places like this that one block could have 25 bordellos on it. That's, a lot of prostitutes and a lot of people who may or may not have been forced into that position. Cheap cocaine and morphine sulfate were being sold to prostitutes, probably, so they could be more easily handled. They were so many of them were on these drugs that cops called them air walkers. Now. A lot of people, when you think of Chicago in the early um, 20th century, you think of, you know, Al Capone and, and that sort of thing. But it, it's really a little before his time. Um, you have people, uh, kingpins like Big Jim Colosimo, were in control. He was the kind of guy who would pay off aldermen and cops. You know, he wore garish jewelry and really nice clothes. But he was a forerunner for people like Al Capone. Other mobsters and that sort of thing. Now, socially, uh, immigrants were really susceptible in this environment. Uh, You had the League of Protection for the Protection of Immigrants. Uh, They were a group of people promoting laws, regulating employment agencies who preyed on innocent immigrant and rural women. That was a quote. And, you know, that was kind of their thing to make sure that these people were protected. But a lot of immigrants did one thing to protect themselves, which is kept to themselves and their community. They would stick to neighborhood businesses where the same languages were spoken, the same culture was known, the same religions were shared. You'd go to a church where they spoke, say, you know, um, Czech, Bohemian, whatever was being spoken there at the time, you know, Irish, and you'd go be in your Irish group, you'd be in your Polish group, you'd be in your, you know, with the Jewish people, You'd, you'd be with wherever your community was, and that was how you kept yourself safe and had some support. Yeah, also around this time, spiritualism became very popular. If you went to a party, you probably participated in a seance. There were fortune tellers all over the city, and Clairvoyance was considered a genuine person, personal trait. Like, I'm blonde, I like reading, and I can speak to the dead. Uh, Harry Houdini was uh, alive at the time, and he was, uh, he was mourning his mother, his, who had only died in, in 1913. And she was very close to her. And he kept trying to contact her. But he would catch people faking clairvoyance. It kind of seemed like he wanted to believe in it, but he he really wasn't going to buy it if you weren't, you know, if you weren't, um, if you weren't genuine. Basically, if you were faking, he was going to catch you. You know, if you were telling the truth, he would he would catch that as well. But he was, you know, he was genuinely looking for this sort of thing, and he actually did catch um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife faking clairvoyance at one party in particular. Um, She claimed that she was speaking um, as his mother and he kind of called her out and said, well, you're speaking in English and that wasn't the language that she spoke. So, um, and because of this, you know, there were a lot of people who had bad dreams and pa- premonitions about the disaster to come and they didn't get on the Eastland. Some of them did in spite of those. And this is about the time that World War One is, is, is starting. Um, it's going on you know, around the globe, but right now it's, it's not really, we're not really involved. America isn't really involved. It's only been 79 days since the Lusitania sink. So there's a lot of talk about the U.S. joining the war to get sort of revenge for this sinking. One of the really things, the really great things that I really like about this era is that jazz was extremely popular at the time. Um, There's a lot of migration of jazz musicians musicians from uh, New Orleans happening. Louis Armstrong's mentor, King Oliver, would travel to Chicago a few years after this. So, and he would, uh, Louis Armstrong would actually follow him up um, a few years later. So, you know, there were a lot of Dixieland bands, Delta Bluesmen, Ragtime. Uh, Chicago jazz was a really big thing, you know, after uh, New Orleans became sort of, um, a little more Jim Crow, and, and the laws got a little more restricted. Uh, Scott Joplin lived in Chicago. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton moved up there. So this is a really great time if you are if you like old jazz, which I happen to like. Um, now, Western Electric is the company that's at the heart of this disaster. Uh, it was founded in 1872 by Elisha Gray and Ajos Barton. They had formed a company, um, sort of a little bit of a a partnership uh, before this, but this is kind of the year that they made it official. Uh, The company made telegraph components at the time, like wires and that sort of thing at the time. And they worked with precursors to the telephone, audio experiments. They were sort of prepared ahead of time for the uh, boom of the telephone. And they became the principal supplier of Bell Network as telephones gained in popularity. At first, they had a four-story building that went up at Clinton and Van Buren in Chicago. They were also making incandescent lighting equipment and machinery for generating electrical power, so they needed to hire a lot more people. About this time, the Haymarket Riot broke out in 1886, actually a few blocks away from the factory. It wasn't really that far away. It involved workers at the McCormick, McCormick Reaper Works, and there were several deaths and many injuries. And the workers had wanted to go from 10 hour days to 8 hour days. Now, German anarchists were blamed, but obviously there's a lot of tension in the community in terms of workers and workers' rights. So the riot prompted Western Electric to obtain a plot of land in Cicero, Illinois, in 1904, so the company could move. The location was at 22nd Street and 48th Street, which is in the Hawthorne District in in Cicero. It was 203 acres, so you're looking at 2.5 million square feet of factory space. This is a very big building. There were 36 building sections, and when it was finished, the factory featured its own railroad station. It had a band shell. It had company stores. Gyms, laundries, ice cream parlors, athletic fields. It was a lot of, a lot of stuff to do on, 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 on work grounds. The company held a lot of different things. Held choral singing, bowling, wrestling, chess, checkers, boxing, beauty pageants, all kinds of different competitions to kind of engender community spirit, I suppose. Uh, but at the same time, there are no coffee breaks and no unions. So it seems like a pretty nice company to work for, and then you're looking at six days a week, no coffee breaks, no unions, a little, a little iffy in regards to the um, the perks as opposed to the the cons, such as it were. Every year, Western Electric held a picnic. Now, this particular year, uh, 1915, the skies were cloudy. The forecast called for showers and thunderstorms, and it was unseasonably cold for. July, So I think people were all kind of hoping, you know, we get on the boat, we go over to Michigan City, Indiana, where it was being held, and hopefully the weather will be a lot nicer when we get over there. Um, In Michigan City, they would hold this particular picnic at Washington Park, which was at the lakefront. And there was a lot to do there, too. They had all sorts of things. They had a bathing beach with bathhouses, bowling alleys, a bandstand, an amusement park, roller coaster, electric merry-go-round, picnic grounds, dancing pavilion, photo studio, baseball park, you name it, they had it. There was a lot to do that day. The picnic who would go every year, they were predominantly young and single, so you're imagining, you know, a lot of, a lot of... You know, late teens, early 20-year-olds, a lot of people who who have, you know, they're very, they have a dependable job. They're going to this picnic. It's kind of a social event of the year. The number of people who had been going to the picnic had grown over the years. In uh, 1913, the attendance went from about 3,500 to 6,000. So due to the growth of the number of attendees every year, the Western Electric Company had hired more ships. This particular year there were five different ships going to Michigan City to the picnic. The cruise itself would take two hours. Now the Eastland would drop off Western Electric employees in Michigan City, go to St. Joseph to pick up more passengers, return to Chicago, and then go back to Michigan City to pick up the employees and take them back to Chicago. And then there were two more round trips after that. So that would take a day and a half altogether that this crew would be working. The ticket price for one of these ships was a dollar on the day, uh 75 cents if bought in advance, 50 cents for kids, and kids under 5 went free. Now, a full-time supervisor at the time made $17. So $1 isn't exactly as little as it might seem to us. I mean, if you made $400 a week today, the ticket would cost $25, so it's still kind of a chunk of money for somebody who's not really making a whole lot, relatively so. In 1915, 7,000 tickets were sold for the event. There were rumors afterwards that employees were required to be there, or at least were pressured to go by the company, but Western Electric denied this. So it wasn't really official, or there wasn't really any evidence. There was just sort of word of mouth, kind of um, an impression of that. The Eastland had run late the year before, so owners required it to leave first in 1915. It was going to be the first ship off the dock, and it was going to be leaving at 7.30. Attendees were going with family Um, Some of them met up with co-workers from the same section of the factory, so if you worked in, say, the coiling room with a bunch of girls, you might meet up with them and go together as a group. Uh, There were a lot of immigrants from Eastern and Northern Europe, so a lot of Scandinavians, a lot of um, Irish people, a lot of um, people um, who were Polish, Bohemian, that sort of thing. Now, they were going on this picnic and, you know, to kind of save a little money because they didn't spend a relative good chunk of their budget on these tickets. They were bringing things like baskets of food to eat while they were there, um, toys. The women were carrying parasols either to keep off the rain or to keep off the sun's glare. The clothes at the time were pretty formal. Uh, you, You were going to work in pretty formal attire every day, and this was kind of a problem for women because you were wearing a dress even though they had a tendency to get caught in the machines. When these people were leaving to go to the picnic they were dressing in their best clothes. Men were wearing their Sunday best, and women were wearing a lot of layers. They were wearing everything that was fashionable in that time. So you were wearing a long dress, nice boots, a fine hat maybe with flowers in the brim, Corsets, stockings, garters, petticoats, etc. You know, that many layers is going to be quite a lot of weight when wet. The five ships that were leaving that day were the Eastland, uh, which was being tugged to the lake by the Kenosha, the Theodore Roosevelt, the Petoskey, the Racine, and the Rochester but like i said the eastland was leaving first at 7:30 so a lot of people were going to try to be on that boat the clark street bridge was where the eastland would be docking you know you would go down to the wharf near that bridge and that was where it was situated on the ship you know it was very hectic from the start like i said you know first ship leaving everybody wants to get on it you know, they had a large dance floor downstairs, and even when you were showing up, you were hearing Bradfield's orchestra, who were playing ragtime music. You know, um, There was a lot of good energy, a lot of people trying to get on, get dry, because it was drizzling at the time. Now, at 6.30 a.m., people begin boarding. Like I said, they're leaving at 7.30. You get on early enough, hopefully you can get a seat before it gets really crowded. From 641 a.m. to 653, the ship begins to list to starboard. Now, starboard is, in this case, closer to the wharf. It is also on the right side of the ship. So if you're looking forward on the ship, you're standing on the front of the boat, and you're looking forward, starboard is to your right, and that's also where the wharf is. Port is to your left, and that is where the river is giving everybody a little refresher because I know that I am not very good with shipping terms either so little nautical update for anybody who's a little confused by that so during this time the ship is righted again after orders are given to put it on an even keel from 7 a.m. to 7.05 a.m. passengers are really boarding fast they're coming on at a rate of fifty per minute it's about a thousand on board at this point And there's a slight list away from the wharf, starting to tilt a little bit towards port, or left, or the river. The engines are started at this point. At 7.10 a.m., the ship quickly reaches its capacity of 2,500, and boarding ceases. And the crew begins to bring in the gangplank. The crew tries to get passengers to move to the side of the ship nearest the wharf, but the passengers won't go. And at this point, actually, one worker from Western Electric jumped through the opening where the gangplank was to get on the ship rather than have to take another ship. He saw his friends on board. He figured, go for it. And he charged and jumped over those little chain kind of um, holding people, you know, keeping people from from climbing on. And he just jumped over it and ran into the ship. At 7.16 a.m. to 7.20 a.m., the list to port, which is towards the river, worsens to 10 to 15 degrees. The valves are ordered open to fill the number two and number three starboard ballast tanks, but no water comes in for seven minutes. That's a long time considering this particular listing. The ship begins to right itself, but it's unstable. The crew finishes drawing in the gangplank, and the ship lifts lists away from the por- wharf again although most passengers are now along the starboard rail so basically everybody's over on the starboard side the wharf side you know maybe waving to friends saying goodbye whatever they might be doing meanwhile the ship is leaning away from them at 7:20 a.m. the list to port continues starts getting worse the water enters the main deck which is the deck with the gangways, through a scupper on the port side. Now, a scupper is one of those little holes in the side that water can filter through. The engines are ordered stopped at this point. Passenger loading is finished. There's nobody else coming on, and preparations are being made for departure. At this point, there's a, there's a harbor master who's actually nearby, and he's kind of calling up to the captain. You know, you really have to um, do something about your ship, um, and the captain's kind of waving him off. Uh, from 7.23 to 7.25, passengers on the main deck are instructed to move to the starboard side and abaft aft of the engine room. So basically, the back of the ship on the right-hand side, near the wharf. Water starts to enter through those port gangways. You know, basically, big holes in the side of the ship, that's where they're going to go. Somebody sounds a warning whistle, and Captain Peterson rings standby on the engine room telegraph and that means this the ship is ready to be tugged away from the dock. The stern of the eastland, the rear, swings away from the wharf into the river and the bow swings slightly toward the wharf, so, it's, so that rear end is starting to pull away while the stern is, is kind of moving toward it. As the ship is moving away from the wharf, the upper deck passengers drift away from the starboard rail, probably done saying goodbye to their friends or family, and, and therefore they're moving away from that wharf side. And this is the start of the third and last reversal in its list to port. 7.27 a.m. The Eastland is listing to port 25 to 30 degrees. Stokers and Oilers in the boiler room run to the main deck. They're scared of this list. They know what it means. There's water entering the ship. They're getting out of there. Passengers on the hurricane deck, which is the top deck, are asked to move to starboard towards the wharf. But the angle is now so great, and the deck is slippery from the rain, and the passengers cannot do it. Below decks, people on the dance floor can't really see what's going on, so they're kind of making a joke about it and laughing. And meanwhile, the harbormaster, Adam Weckler, he comes running over to the Kenosha, the tugboat, and orders the captain not to pull the ship away from the dock until it rights itself. At 7.28 am the angle of the ship is now at 45 degrees. I mean if you just imagine that, that's pretty that seems pretty unrecoverable. The musicians in Bradfield's orchestra can now barely stand up and play. The dock lines are pulling tight as it's listing and they begin to snap and pull at the pilings. Captain Peterson orders a crew member to start getting people off the ship. Dishes are falling off shelves and racks in the pantry. There's a refrigerator behind the bar, which falls over, full of beer, smashes glasses, smashes bottles, and it pins at least one woman underneath it. Water starts coming in through the aft port gangway and main deck portholes. Passengers on the main deck become panicked, and they start to rush the staircases leading up, leading up to the, cab, the cabin deck or the tween deck. These staircases are basically a death trap. You know, you get stuck in them, you're not going to make it. Passengers and crew are jumping off the starboard side towards the wharf, and there, some of them are landing on the river, some of them, are, uh, some of them are landing in the river, some of them are landing on the wharf, lightening the load the ship at the same time. Some are jumping off too late and they hit the hull sliding into the river. So if you imagine Titanic when the one guy jumps off and he hits the propeller, uh, that sort of thing. Um, One interesting note, there's actually a picture of after this when people are are stranded of of a man who's actually standing on the propeller of uh, of the Eastland. Because that's basically where he ended up. That's basically where he landed when he jumped but he gets rescued. Um, The list to port at this point at 728 worsens as water rushes into the ship. You've got people jumping off towards the wharf and you've got water coming in from port so this is not recoverable. The last line holding the Eastland to the dock snaps. At 728 to 730 you have the Eastland coming to rest in mud and 20 feet of water as many morning commuters look on. The ship is lying half in and half out of the water due to the width of the ship and the depth of the water. So the water is, at that point, you say 19 feet, and the width of the ship is 38 feet, I believe. So that's, you know, it's basically cut in half by the river. It falls over in kind of in slow motion. You know, it's one of those situations where a lot of witnesses describe it as falling in slow motion. A lot of the people who fell into the water, they can't swim. That's not something a lot of people can do at this time anyway. It's only starting to become something that you do recreationally. Many couldn't swim anyway, and then you have to throw in the heaviness of their wet clothes. That's not going to help either, especially with the women who are wearing multiple layers. Even though this is a picnic, it's a summer day, they're going to the beach. Fashion decrees. You go there in a long dress and a corset and petticoats and all of this stuff. And then you have to figure that some of these women are holding children, they're holding infants, that sort of thing. So it's not going to help either. People on the dock side begin to throw wooden crates and anything that might float into the water. Uh, but the problem is that a lot of this is swept away on the current. And some of these actually end up hitting people in the head and knocking them out and actually sending them to their death anyway. So... You know, it helps some, but some people, it it really doesn't. The crew of the Theodore Roosevelt, which is not that far away, they throw 50 life preservers to those struggling in the water. So, you know, the people on board who hadn't even had a chance to get lifeboats, who hadn't even had a chance to get life preservers, are getting some thrown to them, which kind of helps. Those on the top of the ship and on the starboard side, could hold onto the dockside railing and climb over without even getting wet. And then they would end up on the hull. But that's as long as their grip didn't falter. You're talking about a rainy day, slick ship. A lot of people lost their grip and fell right into the water. The Kenosha's captain moved the tugboat into place next to the hull. And this allowed those standing on it to walk down and then back onto the dock. So a lot of people didn't even get their feet wet. Rescuers would spread canvas and stardust on the deck to counteract, on the hull of the ship, to counteract the slickness. You know, you really needed to have some sort of grip on this, on the ships if you needed, if you wanted to come on and help. There were a lot of people who decided, you know, who just immediately went into the water to rescue people. One man who was supposed to supervise swimming races at the picnic swam back and forth rescuing people until he. Himself went under, too exhausted to go on. The harbor police set up fishing nets across the river at Harrison and Wells Streets to catch any bodies sent down the current. And they also ordered the locks raised to the drainage canal port 40 miles downriver to slow the Chicago River down so they could recover bodies. Now, at the same time, these harbor police were doing that, there were also police who were trying to keep people from becoming frantic and storming the dock and and doing something, you know, getting themselves in trouble, hurting themselves, hurting others. And they were trying to kind of keep people from going down there, but at the same time, they're keeping people who may have been able to rescue people out of the water from being able to go down to the wharf. And they're also standing up there when they too could be down in the water helping people who were drowning. The people who were trapped below decks when the ship Rolled over. Many, many of them had gone below when they arrived to escape the cool, wet morning. It was a really dreary day, and you just wanted to go down there and just get somewhere nice and warm and and have some fun with your friends. So this was kind of a really bad place to be when the ship flipped over. A lot of people were crushed by heavy furniture as it fell. Like I said the refrigerator fell down and, and crushed a woman. Um, at one point, I believe a piano fell and crushed a man. Of course, there's so much chaos going on at the time, it was really, you know, people didn't notice these things at first. It tilted sideways, so it was sort of like the Poseidon Adventure. Walls became the floor and the ceiling, the floor and the ceiling became the walls. People who are trapped inside, you're now stuck in a difficult position. You now have to try to find a way to navigate out of the wreck. This is a task made more difficult as water is flowing into the ship. People started becoming frantic and and tearing at each other's clothing as they passed by to try and save themselves. You were trying to grab at somebody who could maybe pull you up, but you may drag them down and kill you both. And that was happening not only inside the ship, but also in the waters outside the ship. The crew themselves immediately um, started to worry about the boilers exploding, because when you have a hot boiler, hits the cold water, it's going to be a bad reaction. Uh, Joseph Erickson, the engineer, worked really frantically over the last few minutes of the ship's life to keep those boilers from exploding, and he actually succeeded. He shut the the engines down, he closed the portholes, and he pumped the bilge from the engine room, and that kept those boilers from exploding. So that would have compounded the disaster right there. Erickson ended up ex- escaping soon after uh, a watchman spotted him through the, through a porthole and pulled him through. He got out of the wreckage, but he, he turned around, and he actually went back into another part of the wreckage to save a little girl and four women. So he made an effort to, you know, he realized what had happened, and he was going to at least fix this much. On the other hand, you had Captain Peterson. Captain Peterson was standing up on top, and he grabbed onto the railing as the ship was falling to the side, and hauled himself over and got himself safe. At this point, um, he kind of uh, would later say that he had some sort of um, head injury or brain injury because at this point he turns and he sees people with torches. They've arrived, and some of them have managed to make their way past the police and get down to the hull, and they're ready to cut into this hull to rescue survivors. Captain Peterson comes out of nowhere and tries to stop these these um, torch bearers, basically to stop them from cutting into the hull. You know, stop. You can't do this to the ship. You know, and the torch workers. I mean, you're talking about very very tough individuals. They refused, and one even said, "I told him to go to a place that was hotter than any torch flame." He kind of drew attention to himself. And survivors who were standing on the hull, you know, were standing on the wharf, suddenly notice the captain's alive. He survived this disaster. And one of them even shouted, you know, drown him, throw him in the river. People, police had to show up and lead him away for his own protection. They actually took him and the first mate and put them on one of the um, one of the fireboats. And then they took him up later and put him in a police car and took him away. At one point, a man actually managed to break through the police barrier and punch him, you know, which I wouldn't really want to laugh at because it is, you know, a disaster, but it's hard not to think that maybe he deserved it. Of the people who were affected by the um, disaster, people, um, survivors and people who were on the ship, one of these, um, uh, one of the um, victims was Willie Novotny. Willie Novotny was a little boy. He was 11 years old. His father, James, was a Western electric carpenter, so that was why he was on the the boat. Uh, He went to the picnic with his father, his mother, and his older sister, Mamie. All of them died in the disaster, which explains why later on, Willie was unidentified. You know, you have this little boy, looks, you know, looks peaceful in, in, in death, I guess you could say, and he sort of fascinated the media. When the newspaper put out descriptions of of the dead, he was described as number 396, boy, 11 years old, short, brown hair, black rubber sole shoes, brown suit. Uh, He became known as the Little Feller. That's what they called him. And he became the face of all the Eastland victims. You know, people would talk about him in the newspaper, and when they actually buried the entire family later on, there were hundreds of people who showed up who didn't even know them. Another group of victims of the disaster were the Sindelar family. The Sindelar family was George and Josephine and their five children, Adela, Sylvia, Albert, George, and William, five, who was the youngest, and Josephine's sister. Josephine had carried this beautiful heirloom pocket watch called a turnip watch, and It was later on, you know, it was a family heirloom. They found it after the wreck, and they were able to give it back to the family. What was left of them? Because this was actually the largest family to be entirely wiped out by the disaster. Eight people passed away. And you're looking at a family where, I mean, Josephine and, and it was either George Jr. or Willie, depending on what account you look at, but um, her and her son were, uh, their bodies were pulled out of the river three days after the disaster. So... long time to be in the river. Now there was also the Plamondon family. There was a father, Edmund, a mother, Susan. The teen daughters were Marie and Irene. There was also Edmund's brother, James, his son, W.J., and his daughter-in-law, Julia. So a large family. They had already faced a lot of tragedy. Edmund's cousin, Charles, and his wife, Mary, had died on the Lusitania, like I said, only 79 days before this. And in 1903, Charles and Mary's daughter Charlotte and niece Emily survived the Iroquois theater fire with mild smoke inhalation. So this was a a family that had been touched by tragedy twice. Some really big tragedies in the the beginning of the 20th century, and and those were two of the big ones. Now, when the ship capsized, Edmund threw his wife Susan a life preserver and rescued Irene. Their daughter Marie was saved by a stranger. Edmund and his daughters ended up in St. Luke's Hospital, and it was only after they got home that Edmund found out that Susan had died and she had been identified by her brother. There's quite the family history here, and it's it's sad to see how many people this family lost to so many different um, points of disaster in the early 20th century. The recovery of bodies was really difficult. I mean, you're talking about a river moving river. I mean, even with the the um, drainage, you know, things that were going on down the river to kind of slow it down, it was still moving. As night started coming on, emergency electric lights were strung up over the eastland and inside the hull so that this way divers could go in and, and, and look for, for bodies. Ten spotlights were posted on the top of the Reed Murdoch building. The Reed Murdoch building is actually a a big building right next to the location where the disaster happened. If you look at pictures now of that location, you can still see that building. It's the exact same building. It's actually, um, it's kind of a big, like four or five story brick building with a a clock tower on the top. Bodies were being injected with strychnine to try and revive them. Strychnine is a stimulant And so doctors were kind of going around and, and, you know, injecting them just to see if hopefully that would kind of wake one or two up. And then there were Po-motors, which I think I'm pronouncing that right, Po-motors. They worked like bellows, and they were being used to try and revive people as well. It was basically a mask you put over your face, and there was a little machine that kind of pumped air into your lungs, and kind of before CPR and that sort of thing, and... and, um, It didn't really wake up a lot of people, but it it got some people revived. But Due to the cold temperature of the water, there were some people who were revived without brain damage as long as 45 minutes after the ship capsized. Um, I mean, the water was disgusting, but it was cold enough that you could kind of hold out. Um, At least your body would kind of shut down. And it's much like when you get hypothermia and your um, blood flow to your uh, to your extremities, slows down, and you know, kind of the, the blood goes to your organs to kind of protect them. The same thing happened here. But a lot of bodies um, were people who had fallen off the ship, fallen into the water, and you had people who were watching from, from, the, from the bridge and were looking down and were seeing people swimming and, and, and they just fell down, they bobbed down in the water and the next thing you see you is nothing. At one point, there was a woman. Uh, the story of a woman wearing a big hat, big wide-brimmed hat, and she kind of goes down in the water, and her hat comes up. and They thought that it was um, the man who was watching this happen. thought it was the woman herself, but the hat just kind of went and floated down the river. Fourteen divers were dispatched to explore the Eastland. And what they were doing was they were treading water along a rope line into the bridge, into the into the ship. So it's kind of like again, like the Poseidon Adventure. You know, they take the, the rope down through a, a, a kind of a weave, kind of a maze sort of 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 hallways and, and that sort of thing, and, and kind of following that to look for bodies. When their feet would come in contact with a passing body, uh, men above would, would come to a hole and kind of snag it with a pipe pole and pull it up. Uh, you had uh, uh, more than more than one or two, you know, a, couple, a few divers in the water, and and you know you'd have one over here and one over there, and and taking bodies out, whichever one they found, it you know it got up, and they were just bodies coming up constantly, you know, one I think you know one of the books that I I uh, used for research said one every three minutes was coming up, something like that. You Know they were in this the full suit and the, the diving bell helmet, you know, the whole antiquated picture that you see um, of, of, of the diving bell and, and that sort of thing. That's what they were wearing down there. So, I mean, it's you can imagine them trying to navigate uh, the wreck in that. But there was another diver, um, he's sort of you could call him a volunteer. Um, his name was Charles Bowles, or Reggie, because he was called. Not Reggie, Reggie. Um, if you want to call him a volunteer diver, um, the story that that um, I I read is basically that he he um, was kind of an adventurous. He was 17 years old. He was looking for adventure, always looking for adventure. He had he was a very good swimmer. He had already saved two people from drowning in his life. And according to his mother, he had run into a burning building to save a baby. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, considering what this kid did, it may be true. Um, he was kind of nicknamed the human frog. Because what he did that day was he basically, as soon as he heard about the, the disaster, he got on a motorbike, he went down there, and he dove into the river. This disgusting river full of filth and dead bodies, and he dove in there and he started pulling people out. And he wouldn't stop going into the wreck to pull people out. He would he was not going to be satisfied until everybody in that wreck had been pulled out. He actually had to be restrained by the police to get him to stop in the end. He he pulled dozens of bodies out of the water, tens of Bodies. I know he just kept going and going and going. It really, there's really kind of a, a, a not a really consensus of how many people he pulled out of the water, but um, he did a lot of, of saving of people, you know, whether or not they were alive or not. He did a lot of recovery in, in that term. In return, in regards to taking calls, there were a lot of relatives who were calling Western Electric to try and and find their relatives. You know, try to find out something about their family members. There were people in in Europe who were hearing about this. I mean, even you know, this early that were really who were really trying to to find out what was going on. You know, this is the kind of age where you can you can do that. And as the day wore on, and you know, news starts going over the wire services, that sort of thing. You you start to hear. So, Margaret Condon, who was the head telephone operator at Western Electric, and she had planned to go to the picnic, and she arrived just as the Eastland sank. She went back to her switchboard to handle relatives' inquiries, and she stayed on the switchboard for thirty-four hours straight. Her attitude of it was basically, uh, you know. A I'm not sure, you know, I want to make sure this is done right. And the only way I can do that is by staying here and making sure it's done right. At the wharf, the coroner, Peter Hoffman, began selecting a jury to investigate. When I say at the wharf, I mean at the wharf. He went down to the wreck and organizing the investigation. And he was kind of, you know, um, examining the wreck and looking around and looking at bodies and that sort of thing. Um, Dr. William Evans, the former commissioner of Health, he was chosen as the jury foreman. There were also a lot of people who were taking advantage of the disaster at the same time. Um, undertakers almost immediately began overcharging for coffins. Western Electric and the state's attorney made an effort to stop these overcharges, you know, but some of, sometimes, you know you can't catch all of them. There was a janitor with a sandwich board in a nearby building. And the sandwich board said, here you are. Come see them take the bodies from the Eastland from this building, sixth floor, all for ten cents. And some people just, just will do anything for a buck. And even if it means letting people look at bodies being taken out of out of a capsized ship. The Chicago Sundry Tribune, um, which the Daily Tribune was basically the the biggest newspaper in town at this time, was getting stuff ready for its morning edition, basically, you know, um, collecting information about bodies and that sort of thing. They put um, when the when the issue came out the next morning, it said there was a big headline that said "Bodies awaiting in- identification," and there were five hundred and twenty six bodies listed in the paper. Much like that Willie Novotny description that I gave out before, you know, it was you know a number, uh, gender age, clothing, physical description, that sort of thing. Initially, these bodies were being taken to places like the Reed Murdoch building. Um, that building was um, empty that particular day because that o- that company was having its own uh, picnic. Bodies were filling the lower floors of the building. Uh, every room in the lower floors had bodies in it at that point. There was... a. Temporary morgue on a floating barge near the the wreck. Um, there was a lot uh, going on in terms of of temporary morgues. They were basically putting them wherever they could they could put bodies. Um, Fifty embalmers were working at the Reed Murdoch building, embalming bodies, um, you know, on kind of makeshift tables wherever they could do it. At a certain point, they started bringing bodies to the Second Regiment Armory, so they were all in one place. Uh, The bodies were sprayed with bug repellent or draped in netting, so there would be less, um, less bugs. There were 85 bodies in each row, and they were all numbered and tagged. If you see pictures of the armory full of bodies, it's overwhelming because you know, I mean, you hear 844 deceased, but then you see a picture of this armory, which is a very large building filled with bodies and you know they're neatly lined up they're all covered with sheets and they're just you can't see a full picture with all of the bodies and it's just it's just so hard to do especially in that condition you they're just everywhere The limbs and faces of the bodies were arranged as best as possible not to be frightening to family members who were viewing them. So there were volunteers who were going around and basically rearranging arms and legs and and kind of making it so the faces didn't look terrifying. Because, you know, that's the last thing you want to see when you're going to identify a body. People were, they started allowing them into the the armory at, at 10 p.m. that night. And if you went in and you say you went in with a baby, you could give it to a volunteer babysitter there. Um, They kind of had a group of them uh, available because it was kind of the attitude, well, you don't really want your baby to see that. The crowd was so thick outside at one point, the coroner stepped forward to use a megaphone and order curiosity seekers to leave. There were a lot of people there who were just kind of, um, you know, rubberneckers. They had come just to see the bodies. Of those who died, 228 of them were teenagers. There were 58 in- infants and young children. 70% were under the age of 25. 175 women went home widows, three of whom were pregnant. 84 men went home widowers. And 22 entire families were wiped off the map. Two weeks after the disaster, they would write the ship um, to kind of haul it away, and one more corpse was found inside. It was the body of a father of eight. So, even then, they were still finding bodies. The um, they immediately saw to to kind of getting that coroner's um, jury going on and and. Um, you know, inquiry and indictment and that sort of thing. And the hearings had a single victim stand in for all of the dead, which is what happens in a lot of these disasters. They kind of have one person standing in for all of the dead so that this way they don't have to go over numerous accounts. They can just kind of go, okay, this is one person and they definitely died in this disaster. And in this case, it was Kate Austin. Kate Austin was a cook in Western Electric's cable shop restaurant. The grand jury indictments put forth were for manslaughter for the president of the company, and for three other officers of the steamship company. It was the St. Joseph Chicago steamship line. One of the lawyers for the men of the St. Joseph Chicago company was James Barber, who had successfully defended the people charged in the Iroquois Theater fire a decade earlier. Seems like kind of a niche area to be a good lawyer in. Captain Peterson and... The engineer, Joseph Erickson, they were charged with criminal carelessness. Uh, Captain Peterson had, according to them, failed to evacuate the ship. He sounded the alarm too late. He didn't launch lifeboats or rafts, and he didn't have life jackets handed out. If you kind of look at the timing, it really seems hard to see how he could have done that, but his behavior, I believe it graded a lot of people. Engineer Erickson um, was in trouble because he had married a girl who happened to be the daughter of the inspector for the ship. And there were a lot of questions about nepotism and about how maybe the ship had gotten away with um, being top heavy because he was the son-in-law of the inspector. He actually went and got a lawyer whose name you'll recognize. Uh, He was defended by Clarence Darrow. Uh, He was actually able to give him a retainer of $1,000 thanks to support from an engineer's association. The inquiry found um, found that the disaster was caused by conditions of instability um, caused by any or all of overloading of passengers, mishandling of water ballast, and construction of the ship. However, none of, nothing came of these charges, and the men were free to go. They pretty much got away with it. If they had done anything wrong, they had gotten away with it. Um, a lot of the information you read about um, uh, Joseph Erickson, kind of, you know, a lot of different counts, and it doesn't really seem like he did anything on purpose. Maybe he kind of thought a little better of the ship than he should have, but it doesn't really seem like he... Um, it kind of seemed like he was going to be railroaded, like he was going to be the, the sacrificial lamb. And he really kind of was safe. Maybe thankfully, because he really, he really seems to have tried and really kind of felt bad, as opposed to Captain Peterson, who, who you know, uh, did not behave very well and was very dismissive of, of people, and just witness accounts make him seem very, very bad. The survivors filed a case against the insurers for um, compensation, you know, for um, for the ship um, sinking and, and for the cost of, of losing their loved ones, and the case wound itself through the the courts for twenty years, and the company actually won in the end, which after twenty years of of waiting for some sort of um, some sort of response to this, probably was very disheartening. I can't imagine why it wouldn't be disheartening to, to the uh, survivors to kind of go through all that and then nothing happens. After the disaster, the, this, the Eastland was excavated. It was actually, um, like I said, it was righted two weeks after the disaster um, and kind of brought to a place to be cleaned up and it was renamed the Met in 1920. It was refitted as a naval training vessel um, to be used on Lake Michigan. But, you know, after a while, it really did kind of um, uh, go to be uh, broken up to be used for scrap in 1947. So it still managed to go on after that. I know when they... they um, refitted it as a naval training vessel I believe they they took one or two of the um, upper floors off so that may have helped with the uh, top heaviness the ship itself um, one of the one of the voices of of that generation who who spoke on it was Carl Sandburg who was writing in, in Chicago and he was writing for socialist newspapers at the time doing a lot of railing against capitalism and its negative effects on the working class and um, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a quote of, of him writing that grim industrial feudalism stands with the dripping and red hands behind the whole Eastland affair. At the same time, though, that he was kind of railing against, you know, kind of these, these company owners getting away with murder and, and and tearing these poor working class people to shreds, he wrote a poem called The Eastland, and I it, I say it was called the Eastland. It seems to be nominally about the Eastland. About the Eastland. Um, it, the poem comments on the media's need to put disasters like the Eastland on newspapers when even worse things happen every day. You know, miscarriages and stillbirths, child labor, industrial accidents. I mean, it's a really it's a really uncomfortable read. I would read it now, but like I said, it's not exactly about the disaster. It's about how, you know, he basically says, you know, really, it really doesn't bother me about the Eastland the same way that it does about, you know, um, people dying in mining disasters and people, um, you know, little kids going off every day and, and women having miscarriages and people and women um, dying in abortions. And, and it was kind of, That sort of thing. So you know the subject matter is actually very rough, and it wasn't wasn't published until 1993. Um, As for the survivors themselves, um, you know there were some that um, kind of made their name. Um, Bobby Anstead is is somebody who was mentioned in the um, in the book The Eastland. Kind of they were focused on her and her family, and and um, her uncle Olaf Ness, who was the one who worked for the company and brought his. Or his widowed um, sister and her two girls with him to this picnic, and they ended up trapped in the ship for a while until they had to be um, cut out. And during that time, he rescued some women and, and kind of saved lives all over the place. He, uh, um, you know, she's one of them, you know, she's one of these people that they, they focus on. And But um, the last survivor of the Eastland disaster was Marion Eichholz, and she died November 24th, 2014. So there's nobody left who survived the Eastland. There's actually a lot of people that um, you've never heard of. You know, it's people in everyday life. It's not like the Titanic where a lot of rich people died on it. A lot of big names, you know, um, uh, John Jacob and Astor and Benjamin Guggenheim, as opposed to, you know, the Eastland where it's just people working in a factory who went to a picnic and, and didn't come home. But there was new footage. Found of the disaster, new photos and film. They were located in 2015. It's it's really upsetting. There's there's a lot of um, because it happened on a day when you know so many people had gone to the to the um, to the wharf and so, so many people were going on this vacation. You know, you had people with cameras who were out. You had people with you know um... video cameras who brought them down to the wharf to take pictures of people being pulled out of the water and, and it's um, you know, I've, I've looked at them, of course, and it's, it's disheartening. I think one of the things that really strikes me about the images in the uh, that you see of people who passed away in the disaster is that so many of the bodies that they pull out of the water of women You know, they all kind of look the same there. You know, here's all these women who came in all these clothes, you know, so many layers, their long dresses, their big hats and they're, you know, they're ready to go on this picnic. And then, you know, their hair is pinned up, all of that. And then they get on the ship and it capsizes and they fall into the water and they drown. And when they're pulled out, you know, they've been struggling. Their hat has come off. Their pins and their hair have fallen out. So now their hair is falling down um you know if they were wearing a coat they probably struggled out of it at some point and you know it's a lot of light colored dresses and you have all this black and white photography so every picture of these girls looks a lot alike you know women and children little girls they all look the same when they're pulled out of the water um, not to make light of it, but they all kind of look like Samara from The Ring, you know, long bedraggled wet hair and long white dresses that are wet. And they're sort of in, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to say they look ethereal in death, but, you know, it makes it seem a little more poetic than it is that here are these these children and, and these these women who went to their death on a day when they were supposed to be having a good time and they were supposed to be enjoying themselves. And and Instead, they become these these symbols for such an awful tragedy. My interest in the Eastland is always in the fact that here's a disaster that happened in the middle of the city, in the middle of Chicago. It was on the river. I mean, if you go to Chicago and you see where this is, it's not, you know, it's not... You know, off on a off on, off on the docks somewhere. It's it's in the middle of the city, surrounded by big buildings, and so you had everybody. I mean, Saturday was a work day. There were so many people who were at work that day who were looking down on this disaster as it unfolded. So they could see the ship fall over. They could hear people yelling in the in the in the river. You know, they could see all these things, and it was huge. 844 people died. That's one of the worst disasters in America's history. And you've probably never heard of it. It's very likely that if you're listening to this episode, you've never heard of the Eastland before. I barely heard of it until maybe about 10 years ago. And I seem to recall the first time I heard of it, I had seen a picture of a ship lying in the river on its side. It's it's an image that is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And you look at it and you think, well, they're right at the dock. They should be safe. I mean, at the very least, I mean, if the ship tilts over, I mean, the whole thing didn't go in the water. It didn't, you know, it didn't sink. It just turned over. Surely these people are perfectly safe, you know, but there's other factors. There's, you know, the heavy clothes and there's people who are, panicking and there's people who are freaking out in the water and so that's how you end up with 844 people deceased and when they would pull these people out of the water a lot of them were you know they were holding on to the ship they were holding on to each other for dear life you had people who were so frantic and so terrified that they were holding on to their loved ones they were holding on to children so tight that they couldn't extricate them until they got them to the morgue they didn't even bother they just kind of put them on a stretcher put a blanket over them and took them away and let them figure it out later. This is how terrifying the situation was. It seems like it should be perfectly safe where it is, so it's even worse when it turns out that it isn't. Until next time, stay safe.